Welcome to the Scandal of Reading podcast. Today we're going to talk about Frederick Buechner's Pulitzer Prize-nominated novel, Godric. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk about Buechner, not only because I love him as a novelist, and actually I think I aspired when I went into a theology PhD program to be Buechner just to study theology and end up being a novelist instead, but also because Buechner just passed away at 96 years old on August 15th of 2022. So it is a recent death. And also we want to do a great tribute to the man who did so much good work. And I've invited Reverend Austin Cardi to join us. Uh, Austin is actually going to be a co-host in season two of this podcast. So we definitely wanted to introduce him to listeners and the two of us get to have a conversation. So Austin, do you want to introduce yourself to everyone? I'd love to, and I'm honored to be here with you, Jessica, and I'm excited about season two of this podcast. And for listeners, I'm Austin Carty. I'm a pastor in Anderson, South Carolina, Pastor Boulevard Baptist Church. Uh, I am a pastor who came to the pastorate out of a career uh, teaching high school English, and before that, uh, trying very hard to make it as a writer uh, to varying levels of success. Um, but um, that's my background and the way that I came into ministry. So uh, Frederick Beekner is a Christian writer and minister much after my heart in terms of uh, the things that marked his own life. Yeah. You know, the first time I heard of Beekner, I went to the Festival of Faith and Writing. It was 2004. So I was still at Pepperdine. I was an undergrad. I was about to graduate that May. And this was April and I went to the Calvin Festival and I was completely blown away by so many writers. And there were quite a few that I had read before, Joyce Carol Oates, you know, some of the big names that I think were, you know, New York Times bestselling authors. And I remember my professor who had gone with us sitting on the front row with Beekner, saving us seats. And he's like, this is the greatest novelist who's here this week. And I thought, what? I've never even heard of this person. And then I listened to him give this talk and I thought, I want to read everything he's ever written. I think I bought three books at the festival to get signed because I just wanted to to know his work and really dig into his work. But Godric was the first novel of his I, I read. I read a bunch of his kind of nonfiction before I was introduced to his fiction. And I chose Godric because he said of the novel, this is the novel I want to be remembered for, right? Um and also because I'm always interested in these kind of saint figures in fiction, you know, what do they have to teach us? So that was kind of my introduction to Beekner. Was this was this your first Beekner novel? No, it wasn't. And in fact, and I, I certainly a disclaimer, I don't consider myself to be a Beekner expert, though I've read a lot of Beekner and, and love Beekner. But for all listeners, I'm not a Beekner scholar nor expert, but I've read plenty of them. But interestingly enough, I had not read Godric. Um, I had, I've read, you know, almost all of his nonfiction, you know, a lot of his fiction, uh, but oddly had never read Godric. So this opportunity for us to discuss it was a gift to me to, to do that. And um, it fills in some, some, not some gaps, it explains some things to me. Um, I'd known that he had called Godric the book that he would most want to be, at least the novel that he'd most want to be remembered by. Um, and one of the things that has stood out to me through the years about Beekner. Uh, is he writes um, that all uh, theology, like all fiction, is at its root autobiographical. Um, and, you know, he writes in, in uh, Telling Secrets, he writes, you know, uh, just movingly and hauntingly and poignantly of, of his father and his father's taking his own life when, when Beekner was a young boy. And I'm sure we might get to that later in our conversation, Jessica, but I think it's kind of... Um, 
underneath all these pages in Godric. That's why I bring it up right now that uh, reading Godric was a gift to me because I feel like in it, maybe more so even than in his nonfiction where he's writing about some of the real deepest, hardest things he underwent in his life, he's getting at it even more profoundly in Godric. Uh, with Godric kind of wrestling with uh, the relationship that he'd had with his father and uh, how many years it took for him to kind of try to reconcile everything that they underwent and try to understand the man. Um, so there's a lot about Beekner that I feel like I know about Beekner through his nonfiction, mm-hmm. but then reading Godric, I now feel like I understand on a deeper level because, you know, kind of like Dickinson says, we tell the truth slant. He's Mm -hmm. he's in in many ways. I feel like he's able to speak even more directly to a lifelong search for uh, what the most profound experiences in his life really did to him as a person. Mm -hmm. That that was really the the, the grand uh, gift for me of reading Godric at this point in my relationship with Buechner. Yeah. And I'd, I want to dig in more with the father stuff, but just kind of zooming back a little bit, you know, Beekner was ordained. I don't know if he, did he serve ever as a minister? He, he was a chaplain uh, at, okay. at uh, a prep school in New England. Okay. Phillips Exeter, taught, I think. Yeah. I, he mostly taught literature and theology, right? I mean, that's my, and then wrote fiction. Because I, re- I remember after I started get digging into his biography, like I was so impressed that, you know, he studied under Niebuhr and Tillich. And um, I remember I, I was like, I want to do the same thing. I want to read Niebuhr. I want to read Tillich. And then I want to write fiction. And I think that's something that you and I share, though, from different directions. Like you studied literature and then studied theology um, and kind of went the theology, the pastoral route. I studied, you know, theology and literature and then went into kind of the teaching vocation um, with literature. But why do you think that there is this this correlation for pastors and for people like us between the life of ministry and the desire to read stories? I mean, you've written a whole book on it, right? The Pastor's Bookshelf. Why do you think that people like you and Beekner exist? And what, what is the draw for fiction for, for pastors? In Imagining the Kingdom, James K. Smith's book, he talks about how stories work on us at what he calls subterranean levels. And that is a phrase that has stuck with me since I read that. And I think it best gets at your question. I think that fiction tells the truth, slant as it were, as we just said, you know, echoing the the Dickinson poem. But it gets at a level of truth that, that as it's conveyed to us and as we receive it, we receive it at a deeper level. It's, it's almost subconscious. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about how there are two ways of knowing. This is his take on this. And obviously, philosophically, different people have different takes on uh, ways of knowing. But Lewis's, I find very compelling. If for many other reasons, the most that it has to say something really positive about story. He says that there's the level of kind of abstract philosophical knowing where we can sit down and write a philosophical treatise on something. Uh, and he says there's the level of experiential knowing where we're in it, we feel it, we know it, but that we can't be in the one and also have the other, that that's the very nature of kind of the break, as it were, in, in, in human nature, that we can be as you and I both are right now, both of us relatively, you know, painless, uh, no physical pain we're experiencing, at least I hope that's the case for you, Jessica, it is for me, Um so we could right now wax eloquent on what pain is and write, you know, some philosophical treatise on what that is. 
Uh, but we're not in it. We're not feeling it. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, if we get off of this recording and I walk out the stairs of the church and go down and trip down them and break my hip, I'll be in the throes of physical agony, mm-hmm. know deeply what pain is. But I would be so far in it, I couldn't philosophize on it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't. And so all of that to say that Lewis says that that's what the great benefit of story is. You know, he talks about myth right there, but he means story. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's the bridge between the two, that while we're reading fiction, we are in another shoes to such a degree that we really are experiencing mm-hmm. it. But because it's not technically we ourselves, we're at enough of a remove that we're a- able to abstractly process it at well. And he says that story is the great bridge mm-hmm. uh, between these two levels of knowing. And I think that's one of the reasons that you find such affinity between uh, folks who want to study theology and folks who are studying fiction, how those two often get married, because while nonfiction is important and 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 um, direct theology is very important, you can often convey uh, these truths in ways uh, that is more deeply received and and held on to and, and kind of appropriated when it's taken in through the, the, the vehicle of, of fiction, of story. Oh, that's fantastic. No, I love that. I love, I think, I feel like Lewis uh, definitely speaks so much to stories and oftentimes he's misunderstood because he had such a grip on how the imagination and the intellect are closely connected in a way that our culture seems to pull them apart. And so reading Lewis kind of brings that back together, like you just said. And I brought you on not because you're a Beekner expert, but because of this very thing that you're able to read stories this way, right? You you love them. You understand that they matter. And so we don't have to just talk about Beekner philosophically or abstractly. We get to talk about what we love in the story. Why does the story move us? Why is the story what Beekner wants to be remembered by after he's written it? You know, why is it something that is worth reading even years later. And also it's a, you know, it's a strange story because it's, it's set in the 11th century. So it's far removed. It's not addressing a contemporary issue. Instead, it's getting at kind of the heart of things. And you mentioned his father, the book is dedicated to his father. I love the dedication because it's in Latin. I think that's important (laughs) to what he's doing here. I'd love to hear you talk on that in a minute. But um, you know, he says, in memoriam patris mei, et ad maiorium dei gloriam atque sancti godrice. So, in memory of my father and to the great glory of God and to St. Godric. So, why is he dedicating this book to his father? What do you think? And why is he writing this in Latin? What do you think he's doing? Well, as I said, one of the takeaways for me from the book, you know, playing psychological, you know, our, our armchair <laughs> psychologist here right. as, I, as I read it. Um, but him dedicating this book to his father, I feel like is a real tell that it's, it's a mm-hmm. proper interpretation. Um, you know, his, his father, when he was, was young, took his own life. And, um, and I think he spent the rest of his life trying to come to grips with, with that reality and, and, and all the, 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 the complex emotions that, that he felt around that. Um, and, um, and there's a real kind of sense of reconciliation, I feel like, through this book, you know, the way that, that Godric winds down and the way that he feels about his father that's still complex, it's still vexed, but mm-hmm. there's a real sense of kind of reconciliation and, and, a, and a, almost a peace that he's come to um, at the end of at the end of Godric, um, you know, and 
and I'm, I'm jumping all over the place here, but all these threads are, are connected and um, we'll pull them together at the end. But, you know, his decision to pursue uh, a theological degree and ultimately to go into the ministry um, was inspired almost entirely through the ministry of George Buttrick, uh, the, the preacher at Madison Avenue Presbyterian, um, and a sermon, and not just a sermon, a phrase in a sermon uh, that he later writes about, uh, he Beekner. Um, but he says that when this particular uh, sentence and this particular phrase was spoken, tears welled up in his eyes. Uh, and it says that Jesus is continually crowned in the hearts of all of those who believe in him. And he says something effective, and that coronation takes place among confession, tears, and great laughter. And he mm. said it was that addition of the line and great laughter uh, that caused him to start crying. And he writes later that he feels like the rest of his life has been an attempt to get at the origin of those tears. Like, where oh, did they beautiful. spring from? And he also writes um, that whenever we as human beings feel tears well up, we do very well to attend to those tears, because if we can get to what it is that's animating them, he says that those tears are telling us something about not only where they come from, but about what our deepest longings are. Mm. And he says, and where if we are to be saved, we ourselves are to be headed or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. It's a really beautiful uh, um passage that I encourage anyone to go Google what I just said and, and it'd be yeah. far better than, <laughs> than that. But, but, but all of that to say that I think that in this book, um, his father's suicide is one of those main things that I think are probably underneath uh, those tears that, that sprung forth. He knew not how or why underneath the preaching of George uh, Buttrick, and they're certainly underneath uh, what's happening in Godric. There's a passage, and I even flagged it for us, where uh, he says, um, Godric's writing here, this is Beekner, you know, but this is Godric, but it's really Beekner. He says, more than anything, I think we wept for us, and so whatever is with tears, whatever be their outward cause, within the chancel of the heart, it's we ourselves for whom they finally fall. Mm. Um. And I think that is uh, the fictional Beekner putting into Godric's mouth and in the context of this larger story, what he's writing uh, elsewhere when he writes, you know, and I think it's in Whistling in the Dark, that whenever um, whenever we feel tears welling in our eyes, we do well to, to look for their, uh, their origin. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I, you know... Uh, Albert Camus says um, that suicide is the only philosophical problem, right? Because it's a matter of, is this life worth living? And so for Beekner to come to terms with that sermon, what does make life worth living? And I think it's sainthood. I think it's pursuing the tears and laughter that moves you towards sanctity, right? That you love and feel the right things uh, the way the way God does it is it Leon Bloy B L O Y is I think it's in French blah. Um, these French names, man, they get, they get me every time, but uh, he says the only great tragedy is to not become a saint. I think that Beekner's doing that here. I think he's trying to get us through the life of a saint to feel the tears and laughter that, that lead us towards God. And I think that's why it's connected, you know, the memory of my father, right. That big philosophical problem to the great glory of God, 
right? And to St. Godric, can he move us through this story so that we weep and love and attend to those things? Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. You know, and I, I read him say somewhere, and I don't remember exactly where it was, but that so much of his writing is trying to reclaim the power of these these big, important Christian words that have been kind of hollowed out Mm -hmm. and rendered shallow and meaningless from either overuse or what we now might call concept creep. Um, Mm -hmm. And I feel like Godric's doing that. You talk about what's the benefit of writing about, you know, this 11th century saint using this language that's so foreign to the the contemporary ear. I think part of it's that same project, that it's Mm -hmm. about going back in and trying to reclaim these things like sin and piety and sainthood and striving and longing and confession and redemption. And I think it's about trying to get back underneath all of that and say, listen, there's really a lot we've lost in the way that we've hollowed these things out. Absolutely. And to me, it being a, a Pulitzer Prize nominee is validation that he was able to do that. Yeah. Um, that that the Pulitzer Prize committee was able to see in this otherwise kind of just mundane tale, mm-hmm. um, you know, the real depth of humanity that's involved in Godric's life on account of how seriously he took all of those things like sin and confession and redemption and resurrection. And, you know, one of the things that I was struck by that I marked uh, to just flag in our conversation, Jessica, was that um, he's having a conversation with his mother there towards the very end of the book, toward the end of, towards the end of her life, where she says something to the effect of, uh, that she's looking forward to death because it will be the end, you know, Mm. and he says until we're raised at the last or something like that. And then she kind of pushes back on that saying that she doesn't necessarily have any real desire for that, that one life was enough. Mm. And um, I found that, that moving and challenging because for me, that is, that is why the Christian hope of resurrection, uh, is, is the central piece to the puzzle. You know, it's, it's the grand motif. It's the thing you put that, um, that I don't know life. Uh, I can't, I can't fully understand it. If there's not a hope for not just kind of individual everlasting life, though, though that is important, you know, to me, but that if all of this isn't somehow, um, if the brokenness isn't mended, you know, Mm if, if, um, but it was, it was a compelling take on her part to where I wanted to just affirm that that is a take that, Mm -hmm. that I know people have. And that, um, as a pastor, I always want to be able to impress upon people, my deep belief in the, the historical nature of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that prefigures for what it means for, for, for us as redeemed humanity and all of new creation. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also recognize that there are other people for whom that just does not (laughs) seem to be as, as compelling or necessary as it does Mm -hmm. for me. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, that felt like a conversation that Godric was having with, uh, his mother there where mm-hmm. he didn't have any evangelistic take there at the end that that prevailed upon her 
Um, but they just kind of sat side by side there with their two understandings of reality. <laughs> um, and Godric's is far more compelling for me, but yeah. Edwin's is one that I feel like we have to, uh, and as faithful Christians acknowledge, are also takes that, 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 that folks have. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. Well, it's likely the take that his father probably had, and I think that the beauty of Beekner's writing is that he always deals with the grit and the reality of things, right? There, especially, I mean, this this tale in particular, I'm going to forget the phrase, but he's always talking about, like, I'm going to get it wrong, like dirt and sugar or something. Like, he always puts the the sweetness with the dirty, right? Yeah. He, he always has that kind of combination of elements. He never, he never allows things to be romanticized away from their mundane, from their grit. Uh, and I think people miss that about Beekner and, and stories like this return us there to show us not only the accessibility of sanctity, but the reality that even the most deplorable and dirty and gritty lives can be sanctified. Well, isn't that, I mean, that's the crux of this book. You've got yeah. Reginald who's writing a hagiography, but what Beekner's meanwhile doing is he's saying, yeah, okay, so here's going to be this hagiographical take, but here is what the man was really like. And that those things are not contradictory, but that it represents a paradox mm-hmm. that that here is this aspirational take on who this man at his core aspired to be and 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 his best moments was, but that here also was the reality. And here's what yeah. it means to be fallen and human. And that those two things aren't contradictory, but that they're paradoxical. And I think one of the great benefits of him not trying to resolve uh, either that in the character of Godric or resolve that 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 quick conversation I just spoke about between Godric mm-hmm. and Edwin is that he's ultimately trying to remind us as people of faith that don't try to rush forward the resolution. Right. We, Christ Jesus has been raised from the dead, we believe and take on faith, but the rest of us, we're still living here right now where this right. age touches upon the next. We don't know what's to come following. We have this grand hope for it, but yet Meanwhile, we groan, as the Apostle Paul says. <laughs> and and so we have this kind of overly saccharine, sugary yes. Christianity that tries to rush forward the resolution as if we've seen behind the veil or if we know. And we, we take these things on faith and we hope that that day is indeed coming. But um, Beekner won't allow that to happen in either right. his fiction or his nonfiction. It's a picture of aspirationally what 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 we aspire to and yeah. also kind of the the grit and the reality of the mundane. Ah, so good. Well, and I love the way Godric phrases it cuz his humor, you know, and it's 11th century or plays on 11th century old English and it's it's playing on that change in the language. Uh he says, "I scoop out the jakes of my remembrance." And he senses it, meaning Reginald, with all his clerkish screed till it reeks of mass. 
I th- but I think that there is there's also some good to that happening, right? To the maybe there is to the baptizing of a life to to transfiguring it for readers. Maybe there's a benefit to both of them. What would be the benefit to the way that Beekner tells it as opposed to the baptizing or the sensing of it uh, to uplift us, you know, into this this morality tale, I guess, that saints' lives sometimes become. Yeah, I, I think that's so well put, and that's why I think it's best to think of that as a as a paradox rather than a contradiction. That mm-hmm. um, that the the take on a saint's life that is just purely hagiographical, it gives us something to aspire to, <laughs> and but but the real brilliance to what he did here with Godric is that you're watching at one level Reginald put together that form that we absolutely need. We, yeah. we need, we need these symbols uh, that represent all that we aspire to. And that in as much as is humanly possible have lived these things out. Right. But yet we also need to be reminded that when we aspire and journey toward, uh, these these lives and and virtues ourselves that those folks were also human beings and beset by the same sinful realities that we are and, go back to like that anal- like that um bridging that you're talking about between the abstract analyzable right material of the saint's life in which you can draw these theological morals from who the saint is and then on the other hand, we have the Beekner novel that makes you feel that you desire sanctity, that it brings you to tears and laughter. Yeah, that's really good. I hadn't thought about it that way. But yeah, I can definitely draw a connection between those two things. And that's the brilliance of what Beekner did here, because you're getting both at the same time. You know, yeah. you know that the hagiography is being written. Uh, you, you, you understand and you even get some glimpses into how Reginald will put it together. But right. then at the same time, it's being not necessarily undercut, but being kind of layered with his own take. But even in that, Jessica, there's something powerful because it's 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 a sincere humility on his part that won't allow the hagiography to discount who he really is. Mm-hmm. And anybody who doesn't have an admirable... Um, uh, level of humility <laughs> uh, would not be one who's going to be resistant to and saying, no, 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 don't forget this. Don't forget this. Don't forget this. And so even in that, it's giving us something to aspire to. Yeah. I wish I wish I could remember the exact place of this quote. I'm sure that I cited it in my book, but um, I think it was Stanley Hauerwas that said that our greatest saints were our greatest sinners because they had this driving passion in their life that led them to love the world. And then when that falls and they're transfigured, that love of the world changes and it changes, you know, it's moved from lust to love. I mean, that's what you see in the life of Godric, right? Is this great passion for the good things, but too much and in the wrong way. Yeah, that's so good. And it reminds me too of something that I felt like contrasted Godric with Elric, you know, who was kind of his mentor there early uh-huh. on. And, Elric, he writes about having been so kind of self-effacing and so just um, almost bitter 
that he talks about how Elric, you know, never doubted uh, his entrance into paradise, as he put it. He said, but I wondered whether after years of unuse, he would even be able to enjoy it or something oh, like that yeah, right. um, to yeah. where, you know, I feel like that is something that's that's admirable in Godric as it's presented, because even though he's curmudgeonly toward Reginald, you know, mm-hmm. there there's a sense that and having kind of retrained his lust towards love, as you just put it, I think mean, that's a great term. And having having changed the way he would frame his understanding of loving the world, there was still a love for the goodnesses thereof. You right. know that a, a, a reclamation of being able to truly appreciate the world that God in the in the beginning deemed very good and that we yeah. as Christians believe will be very good as it's intended to be once more, you know, yeah. come the fullness of time and new creation and all. But but there is something that can happen, I think, um a a, a kind of perverted um attempt at humility that causes us to become um to 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 almost not appreciate um the joys and the goodnesses and some things that there are in this world to where we feel like we have to be so self-effacing um that that we that we lose sight of uh, we stop training that muscle and and that's really important and i think elric represented how that can can happen whereas godric represented how 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 to renounce ourselves in in, in in such remarkable ways as Godric did, um, but still be able to appreciate the goodness and joy in the world. Right. Um, if that makes yeah, any sense. I, yeah, I know it does. I mean, Elric is more of our stoic <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know, and, and Godric, even his real humility at the end of his life, when he says God will raise Godric again to life, to either burn in hell as he deserves or caulk and patch until he's fit to sail to heaven at last, right? There's this real humility that says, I can imagine my own damnation. I can imagine that I deserve death, but I hope in purgatory and resurrection. I hope in the life after being something that's pleasurable, as pleasurable as this life was. Yeah, exactly. And and I think that even with that line, it goes to show just how seriously Godric took his life in faith and how yeah. humble he was. Um, yeah. And all of those things bespeak what we were saying earlier about for Beekner trying to get underneath um, a lot of these old Christian words and ideas that uh, for many contemporary ears have been kind of hollowed out of meaning. And I think Godric does that because there in the end, you take him, whatever your take on all of that is, you take him seriously. That that is a matter of chief import for him. Not that he is uh, some dolt that has been uh, kind of hoodwinked into believing these ridiculous things. You might not believe them as a reader, but you don't think Godric's anything less than somebody who took life very seriously and came to this, you know, um, uh, in as, as serious a measure as one possibly could. Yeah. So I have to ask you a question about this because we keep talking about these concepts of sin and redemption and damnation and sanctification. And, 
usually I teach a lot of Catholic novels and I hear from Protestants, you know, why do the Catholics have all the great novels? Well, this is a Protestant novel. And yet, because it's set in the 11th century, it reads so much like a Catholic novel. There's visions of saints and healings and the casting out of demons. There's even friendship with animals, <laughs> which might strike Protestant readers as too strange too weird, too much of like an enchanted worldview that has nothing to do. Like, didn't we get rid of all of that in the Reformation? What do you do with all of that for your Protestant readers? How is this still a Protestant novel and how should people read it? Well, I think this is a, it's a a Protestant novel in as much as it's written by a Protestant, but as you said, it's about a Catholic saint. So this kind of falls in, in kind of a gray area here, but, uh, (laughs) One thing that I think about in you asking that question comes from another Catholic writer, Graham Greene, you know, who writes that it's not a matter of miracles not happening anymore. It's a matter of calling them something else. He writes that in The Power and the Glory. Um, and, you know, a, a lot is a lot is often made of um, questions about miracles and about, you know, some of these more abiding themes that you just talked about that tend to track more with Catholicism than, than it does Protestantism. Um, but I don't wonder whether we as late modern human beings in general, and as Protestants in particular, don't need a little re-enchantment <laughs> um, that, uh, that a good place to start for that might be reading Godric. Um, <laughs> I was hoping you would say that. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's a great place to start with that. And I mean, there's so many ways I could go with all of this, but I do think that as much as I am a grateful heir to the Protestant Reformation and very staunchly, you know, Protestant, I have great admiration for the Catholic Church out of which we come. And as a Baptist, I believe that we really need to re-enchant a lot of our faith. We have hollowed it out so significantly. Um, and uh, and to, to, to really, really kind of um, deleterious effects, I think. Um, and so leaving aside the question of just how do we parse and make meaning of all of these great terms and, and, and um, the way that they factor into this book, I think what we can certainly say is that Christian readers in general, Protestant readers in particular, ought to read these and take them very seriously and let these kind of ideas work on us and have the effect that they're intended to have. You know, not to continue to quote C.S. Lewis, but here again, you know, he writes about one of the real, real problems with modern theology is that it stripped all the symbols of any real content uh, and meaning. And, you know, he says, however, somebody who deals only with kind of the um, uh, the literal level of the symbol is actually going to be more starved than the person who's feeding on the symbol because the symbol has such great power. <laughs> he says that the great thing about the Christian story is this myth become fact, mm-hmm. you know. And so rather than kind of get into like all the different uh, items that you just named, what I would say, since we don't have space and time for all of that, is regardless of what a Protestant tends to think about all of those rich terms, let the symbols work upon you the way that they're supposed to work upon you and take them seriously. Because even if they mean nothing to you at the literal uh, level, which I, I don't think is a good place to be, but even if they mean nothing to you, then at least it's still going to have kind of that power that they're intended to convey uh, that somebody's not going to get if uh, they don't understand 
how these things ultimately point to something far bigger beyond themselves. Yeah, that's fantastic. I don't really want to add anything to that because that that's exactly right. I'm hoping that the reenchantment comes from reading this story. Just to close with the idea of Godric being this holy fool, you know, we do have the casting out of demons. We do have the friendship with animals. And a lot of these things seem really strange to us. And when Godric takes his pilgrimage to Jerusalem, he's remembering Paul's words, you know, be fools for Christ. So in closing, what do you, what kind of foolishness should we emulate from St. Godric or what could kind of be our takeaway if we were reading this, this story? To me, the thing that just jumps off the page and answer your question is his humility. You know, when Paul writes about being fools for Christ, he's hearkening back, that's in chapter four, first Corinthians, he's hearkening back to chapter one, where, you know, he talks about how uh, the, the, the wisdom of God is, is um, wiser than, yeah. the, the, excuse me, the foolishness of God is wiser than, than, than human yeah. wisdom and the strength of God, you know, is, is mightier than, than human strength. And it's, it's really all about um, a kind of approach to reality that is, that is upside down and that, that, that puts the humble way over the will to power. Mm. And as Christians, we talk a lot about humility, but we tend to valorize the will to power. Absolutely. And that's, that's not very Christian, you know, in, in, in Lutheran language, we, we really follow after a theology of glory instead of a theology of the cross. Wow. And I think a holy fool um, is one and Godric, bespeaks this that really does believe that even if you can't see it now even if it doesn't seem to be that this is where power inheres and that this is the measure of the good life that ultimately this is god's way that that humility and self-giving is the way and that's why resurrection to me is so important because Mm -hmm. that is if that happened, which I believe deep in my marrow it did, if it happened, that is God's ultimate yes and vindication to that way. Um, but so in as much as um, Godric is a holy fool and calls us to be holy fools, I think his humility uh, is something that we should aspire to. And I would love to be a much holier fool than, than I am. And we'll, we'll keep striving uh, day in, day out to, to be more so. But Godric will be a help to that end. Amen. Well, I hope this encouraged more people to read Godric and of course also to read your book if pastors are interested in adding more reading of literature to their life. I can't recommend the pastor's bookshelf more highly than I hope I already have. So thank you, Austin, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jessica. Always great to be with you.